Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. As many of you know, we typically release an episode every two weeks, but in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been trying to put out content more frequently. We know it's a tough time for a lot of people. Many of you are cooped up at home and looking for educational or potentially enjoyable content. We recorded a fantastic interview with Jeff Nippert a few months ago, and we figured now would be the perfect time to release it. Jeff's got a huge audience, so some of you may be joining us for the first time. If so, thanks for stopping by. Also, you should probably be aware that Greg and I are very, very sarcastic people. So as a result, we say some very distasteful, very disparaging things to Jeff. Uh, So rest assured, we love Jeff. It's all in good fun. So don't take us too seriously. Anyway, Jeff is awesome. He puts out exceptional content on YouTube, and he's got one of the best natural physiques on the planet. In today's interview, Jeff tells us all about his approach to training, nutrition, and even content creation. This was a really solid interview, and we hope you enjoy it. All right, uh, this is Eric Trexler from Stronger by Science. I'm here with Greg Knuckles, and today we are joined by Jeff Nippard. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Jeff, uh, I want to dive right into the topics here because we got a lot to talk about. The first thing I want to ask you, you know, I have something written down here. I was going to ask you how it feels to be fake natty, but <laughs> I want to revise that question to a two-part question. Okay. Number one is, how does it feel to be the patron saint of the fake natties? Oh, and number boy. two, would you like to use the next 90 minutes to apologize? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know we were going to start with this. <laughs> oh yeah, this is we're great. diving right in. Okay. Um, okay. So you know, I actually find lately I haven't been getting that quite so much. Um, it's interesting because with the with the fake natty thing, like in my YouTube comments, someone undoubtedly will throw that at me, and then in response, it's it's rarely the case that someone will just be like, "Oh no, you know, Jeff is just really." dedicated the better part of the last decade to mastering his craft. He's looked into, you know, all the literature. He's got a great work ethic and he's just built a great physique. The response is usually, what? Are you kidding me? Fake natty? This guy doesn't even look like he lifts. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I kind of like the guy calling me a fake natty better. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say like, uh, Greg actually called me out because somebody posted on one of my pictures that like, oh, this guy's on, on the juice. But it was like a very old picture, and he's like, "Ah, mm-hmm. that sucks. You don't have it anymore. No one thinks Ugh. your new pictures." Yeah, are I, I, it's it's simultaneously an accusation of, at least in America, a federal felony, but also a pretty big compliment. So it's it's mm-hmm. hard to tell how to how to respond to that. Yeah, I, I I first when I first started getting it, I was really taking it as a compliment. But then people tend to attach things to it, like it somehow lessens my credibility. It's like, oh, you can't trust him. You know, he's a fake natty. So in my head, I'm like, well, I could I could stop trying so hard. I mean, I could start looking a little worse. Maybe that would, <laughs> that would help my credibility in, in the eyes of some of my viewers. Um, but yeah, you know what? It's it's one of those topics that I've kind of just like removed myself from because over the years, like I used to say, you know, look at, look at all these piss tests I've passed. Look at these polygraphs I've passed. I've competed since 2012. And if you look at my physique, the changes in my physique from 2012 to now, I mean, they're in, in one sense kind of depressing. I mean, they've just been very marginal with like the natural waxes and wanes that you see in physiques. Um, and nothing like that really stands out as extraordinary from my perspective. And I, you know, I've shared all of those arguments, like look at my track record, do it. I have other characteristics that you'd see in people who are deceptive or whatever. 
um, presented all the relevant literature and the problems with FFMI and everything like that. And it just doesn't seem to do a single thing. So I've pretty much given up on answering that question. And at this point, it's like, does it, does it really matter? Um, I think, Greg, you actually posted something really enlightening to me about this um, when the whole Natty Verified thing was going around. And it was like, the playing field was never really even to begin with. And I think the main issue with fake natties is this sense that they're saying, if you do XYZ or you take XYZ supplements, you'll look like me. But that's problematic whether or not the person's using anabolics or not because of all these other factors that you can't control for. I mean, you're never going to look like really anyone else regardless, right? So it's kind of like a silly distinction to be making on the face of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like, this is, so I think Ray Williams is drug-free, but if Ray Williams went out on social media and said, buy my program and you'll squat 1,050 pounds, that would still be a shitty thing of him to do because it's just not going to happen, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and Jeff, you mentioned uh, about a minute ago, you mentioned fat-free mass index or FFMI. Um, and a lot of times whenever people have this discussion if somebody's natural or not, they kind of lean on that metric as the be all end all metric only if it supports the conclusion they wanted to get at. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but do you happen to know like the highest your fat free mass index has ever been? Yeah. So I did a DEXA, I think it was early 2017. So about three years ago. Um, and I came out at I think it was 8.4% body fat, according to that DEXA, at 162 pounds and 5 foot 5 inches tall. So when I plugged that in, it came out to be 24.7. Um, so barely in there, <laughs> right? 25 is the cutoff for Natty, yeah. right? Well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's another uh, calculation that is normalized FFMI. So I think it just further corrects for height. Um, so when I plug it in for that value it's something more like um the high 25s or 26 something mm. like that um so that puts me in fake natty territory oh man yeah it, it's that height adjustment that gets you every time <laughs> exactly um <laughs> no we had a we had a question about this on the podcast and somebody asked as part of the question what mine was kind of like at mm -hmm. its highest and i remember like my answer is like i don't know probably not even close and greg was like Maybe you should look into it. I think mm -hmm. you have been close. And he was right. But I have so little value for that 25 cutoff that I've literally never really like thought about it. So I was like, right. oh, I guess I did maybe flirt with the fake natty line. But uh, it, it is funny, though, because you get down to the numbers of it. Like, I've actually argued on your behalf. Like, like I've heard mm -hmm. somebody say, ah, that Jeff Nippard, he, he's totally on the juice. And I'm like let's talk numbers here. Like these aren't like absurd things. The dude just looks awesome because he is good at this. He's got good genes and his muscle bellies are sick. And like, I feel like nobody appreciates the fact that two physiques with the same metrics in terms of just sheer mass and body fat can look very, very different. Yeah. And so that actually leads me into the next question here. You talked about with, you know, natty or not, it kind of doesn't matter because it's not a level playing field anyway. We, we all kind of have our, our strengths and weaknesses genetically. How much of your physique do you attribute to, to your genetics? Like, do, do you consider yourself to be like pretty above average genetically for lifting? Um, I, I would say, I, yeah, I would say above average for sure. Um, 
both of my parents were were recreational bodybuilders and you know they trained my mom and dad have been training for gee i don't know at least probably 30 years a piece right um so i would say the genetic side for sure um is in my favor but also the environment side like i got into lifting really early and bodybuilding was just kind of normalized around my house like my dad would wear stringers to the gym in the 90s and uh have bodybuilding magazines lying around the house he would eat his egg whites and uh, whole wheat toast for breakfast and so i was just around that growing up so as soon as i turned 15 which was the the minimum age requirement to lift at my local gym um you know he had me in there right away um so that was probably a, another big factor that in some sense is is outside my control in a addition to the actual genes that they passed on to me um, that, that I can credit for where I kind of ended up. Um, as far as like putting a figure to it, I find that's tough to do. Like I would say m when it comes to my proportions, insertions, symmetry, that kind of stuff, which like you just said, Eric, can make a massive difference in how impressive your physique appears. Like I think there are plenty of guys who aren't natural pro bodybuilders who would have similar stats to me, like 162, 5'5", 8 or 9% body fat. Doesn't, I mean, it's good, but it doesn't really jump off the page. But it's that roundness of the muscle, the way that they insert, the proportions that when posing under good conditions just really can look impressive. And it's that side of my physique that I attribute almost entirely, like near 100% to genetics. Um, I think it also depends on who you're comparing me to. So for example, if I were to uh, compete at natural bodybuilding worlds, I would say the differences between those 10 or 12 guys on stage are probably almost entirely attributable to genetics as well. Because at that level, I'm assuming most people have figured out, you know, what methods work well for them everyone is lean, which is what can differentiate competitors at lower level shows. Um, and everyone's a hard worker. So I just feel like the actual methods probably play into it a lot less at a high level like that. And the differences between competitors probably mostly due to genetics and judging. If you're to compare me to like an average gym goer, I would say in that case, I would give my hard work and my methods a little bit more of the credit there because I do think that if I wasn't, you know, as dedicated and committed and just consistent over the years as I've been, and I just went, you know, through your typical like lackadaisical training styles or whatever, drank on the weekends, did whatever with my diet, I don't think I would look anywhere near the way I actually look. Um, so in that sense, I would say, my genetics are still good, but I think the majority of my results can be attributed to what I've you know, done with my training and diet over the last 14 years. Does that make sense? Definitely, yeah. I mean, so the internet informed me that your mom is in fact like super jacked. Is your mm -hmm. dad as jacked as your mom is? I think that if they were to compete <laughs> against each other in some kind of <laughs> twisted bodybuilding division, um, my mom would win. I think she's just got the 3D delts. She's got 
the the hardness and density to the muscle. Um, but my dad has definitely built up an impressive physique. But I think I got most of my shape genetics from my mom for sure, especially like the shoulders and the calves. Like my dad doesn't have my calves, but my mom does. You know. Yeah. So you were born right into this thing. Did you mentioned the time period? You said your dad would wear the stringers into the gym. Did he have just an incredible? collection of fanny packs and do you have access to any of them <laughs> that's funny uh i don't know if i remember that but i remember when i was like in that weird preteen stage like i used to be embarrassed because he would show up to like my basketball games and stuff in in stringers with like the gym bag <laughs> i'm trying to think of what his age would have been at the time and i was like dad you gotta stop wearing those man it's so weird <laughs> <laughs> did, he, and he did, did he have the bright pants too that are made out oh of, like, yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah I forgot Dude, that's that that's yeah. awesome <laughs> yeah that's honestly like people say oh the fitness industry's changed it's not what it used to be we should have kept it exactly there where it was just stringers and and the insane like super bright pants that was when we peaked and it's all been downhill since you you know i think the the cutoff sweatshirt era was pretty good as well oh yeah that was good oh oh, i know what you're talking about yeah Yeah, like when everyone was rocking the bill belichick look yeah or like in that same era when they everybody wore a shirt that was like 11 sizes too big and just took scissors to it and whatever you got was what you got. I mean, I still would like to do that. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay made me throw throw out all of my like 5XL like scissor cut shirts like That's two all. years ago. I can't believe she would do that. Dude, they're the most comfortable thing though. I know, I know. So, so you were like born into this, but, but obviously you mentioned... A lot of training over a lot of years. Um, and I think that's something that Greg and I share in common with you is that we got into it pretty young, you know, relatively speaking. I know speaking for myself, my training for the first three years was just trash, like just absolutely garbage. So I guess my question is, how has your training evolved over the years? Like, like what was your training like when you first got started? So pro- probably similar to you, I started with, with the body part split. Um, that, that was what my, my parents did. So yeah, my mom and dad would take me to the gym and we would do, it was the stereotypical one, you know, chest day on Monday, back Tuesday, legs once a week, um, whatever. Um, and when I say like on my channel that that was how I got started, I think people assume that I started with that for, you know, I dabbled with it for a couple months and then got on the right track from there. But in reality, it was probably like five or six years of consistent body part split training (laughs) um, at the beginning. And when you think about it, I mean, that's probably when I built most of my muscle. So I would say most of the physique I have today was probably built off of a body part split. Um, maybe you have a similar story, Eric. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what you started with. I mean, yeah, I just started with, I wouldn't even give myself that much credit. So I started lifting when I was 12. And, uh, so my first probably year was just like, oh, I think I understand which direction I'm supposed to push this machine. And then I just take it for a ride. Um, but you know, by 14, I was at least doing a sensible body part split kind of thing. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, at that age, with no experience, you're going to grow no matter what you're doing. Um, but it comes back to what you're saying, though. You mentioned like you almost feel kind of sad looking back at the last couple years of progress because once you've put on most, you know, a lot of your mass, it's going to take a lot to continue building from there. I remember I saw uh, Brian Whitaker give a talk one time, 
And Brian Whitaker is awesome, by the way. Multiple-time world champ, I believe. Um, natural bodybuilder. But he, in his presentation, he showed these two pictures of himself. And the point of his presentation was like, wow, night and day difference. But it was from like him as like second in the world to him as first in the world. I think 98% of the room couldn't tell which was the before and which was the after. <laughs> but it's like it's like you were saying, those differences at that level and, are... And were, were they like seven years apart as well? <laughs> they, I think they were only like a year or two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But he was like, man, could you even believe that this progress was possible? And I think a lot of people were like, <laughs> yeah, your, your before picture is the best physique I've ever seen. So I, I don't know what you want. Yeah. But, but no, I it was see- kind of a similar thing. I see some of these transformations sometimes and I'm like, that could, you know, not to take away from it at all, but like sometimes the the differences in, in physiques that you see from, from natural bodybuilders is like, you know, that could be a difference in one meal, you know what I mean? In just terms of like muscle fullness or like a change in lighting or something like that. It's kind of, it's kind of, it can be depressing when you think of it that way, but like, especially if the lighting conditions are different or whatever, it's like to the unaided eye or the unaccustomed eye, it would look almost indetectable like you said definitely so so you started out doing the body part split and and you went that route for a few years and obviously still put on you know plenty of muscle mass but what was it that kind of caused you to reassess things and and try some other strategies uh after that number of years Mm -hmm. so after that i i was introduced to a style of training via the internet called maximum overload training or max ot training have you ever heard of it yeah Yeah, i've heard of it yeah Yeah. okay um so the basic philosophy this was that that, that was the one that uh jeff willett that's right popularized right yeah 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 um jeff willett and skip lacour so they were the kind of natural bodybuilders that I was really looking up to at the time. So this was around 2010. So I'd been lifting for about five years. Now I should say that the way I did my bro split, I thought like handed down from my parents, I thought was effective because there was good training advice in there. Like my dad was really big on good technique, always, you know, controlling the negative, not using more weight than you can handle. Um, I think the volume was pretty standard um, and, and, in line with what I'd even recommend today. Um, so there might've been, you know, some suboptimality in terms of the the training frequency, but I just think that if you stretch that out across enough time, then, and, and, you know, all the other relevant factors are in place and are okay, then uh, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that like it would have made an enormous uh, difference for me. I mean, I, I probably would have gotten results a bit faster had I have uh, started with something more optimally, uh, more optimal, no doubt. Um, but yeah, just to clarify, like, I don't think that it was a training or a, a terrible training split and I just got results by fluke or something like that. I think that the rest of it was actually pretty reasonably well designed. Um, but anyway, back to, to max OT training. So the idea there was that, uh, you would at, any cost overload from one workout to the next. So it was a very low volume protocol. For example, the leg day would have you doing like three sets of squats, three sets of leg curls, that's it. But every set was taken to failure and every set you had to do more weight or one more rep than you did the previous week. And all reps across all exercises were in the four to six rep range. So it sounds kind of bizarre, um, and, and once a week training frequency. Um, and I ran that style of training for a, 
about a year. And I think it was actually in the context of my entire training career quite important because it really forced me to get comfortable with training super hard and really pushed progressive overload. In retrospect, I think it pushed it too hard because it was kind of built into that style of training that you should overload at any cost, even if that means using a bit more momentum, cheating a little bit. You just, you have to get that extra five pounds on the bar or get that extra rep out or what have you. Um, but I think that there were some good nuggets built into that program. And I think I attribute, you know, my comfortability with knowing, for example, how many reps I have in reserve in my current training to knowing exactly what it feels like to go all the way to failure. And I think I owe that to max ot training no i i agree with you wholeheartedly i I think we've talked about that on the podcast before that like whether or not training to failure all the time is necessarily the best thing to do i think that at minimum it's an important thing to gain a, a fair amount of experience with at some point in your training career preferably fairly early on just just so like yeah I, I mean, hard training is hard. And until you have abundant experience doing it, it's uh, it's fairly easy to delude yourself into thinking you're going pretty hard when realistically you're leaving way more in the tank than you think you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the, the programs nowadays, we kind of talk to uh, Mike Tushir about this, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them ask trainees like, okay, leave a couple in the tank or whatever. But if you really, if you've never really figured out where to anchor that scale and, and what that real failure looks like with mm-hmm. some experience, I think a lot of people are, are really kind of leaving a lot in the tank and not knowing it. Dude, if, if you're doing, if you're doing say moderate rep squats and you're supposed to leave a rep or two in the tank, dude, a set of 10 squats with one rep in the tank is a fucking hard set of squats. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's tough. It's gonna suck pretty hard. And and I think uh, I think a lot of people just don't get that. Mm-hmm. As an aside, I forgot how fucking big Jeff Willett was. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of him pulled up right now. Jesus Christ! Mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for a drug tested bodybuilder, he was huge. Yeah, one one Jeez. of the all time greats for sure. So you, you kind of transition from a typical, you know, body part split to kind of typical bodybuilding kind of split. You tried out the max OT, but that still sounds like it's a, a low frequency thing, right? Yeah, it was low frequency. The, the difference with this was that it was very low volume and very high effort, very high intensity. Um, and, th- and that was kind of another thing that I, I liked about it because it, it was different in that sense, but it made the training feel very manageable. It was like, you know, I only had to go in and destroy these three sets of dips. And then, you know, I could wipe my hands clean and be done with the workout kind of thing. Um, And I don't know, in retrospect, it's like, that was a cool, manageable way to train. I feel like, you know, I learned quite a lot from this style. And now currently, you know, obviously, I take more of a, a higher volume or moderate effort approach. Um, but just, you know, talking about it here now, it reminds me that like, if you're going to go all out, then the, you need to correct for that by lowering the volume, which, which this routine did quite well. So nowadays it sounds like you're doing a lot of like some really high frequency stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I guess, did you kind of work your way up through various programs and kind of realize that 
that you responded better with higher frequency? So after Max OT, I that was when I started. Um, that's when I that's when I was introduced to the fact that there is a science based bodybuilding community. So this would have been around like 2011 or 2012, and that was when I started with uh, upper lower split uh, push pull leg split or you know some kind of hybrid split of those. Um, but shortly thereafter was when I started really getting interested in powerlifting. Um, so this was inspired by Lane Norton. He was a natural bodybuilder I really looked up to. I actually hired him for one prep and he was having a lot of success with combined powerlifting bodybuilding. So at the time I thought, hey, I've never really given this powerlifting thing a shot. Let me try that. And a part of that, I mean, this was, this spanned probably two years that I would have considered myself a pure power lifter, more or less. Um, even though I still, I guess, in the back of my mind had bodybuilding goals, I was competing in powerlifting. I did something like six powerlifting meets. Um, so I've done about as much competition in powerlifting as I have in bodybuilding. I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, but it was during this time frame that I experimented first with high frequency training. So I've, you know, run phases where I'd squat five days a week, uh, bench, four or five days a week. I even did a high frequency deadlift program, which I actually think might've been what ultimately got me injured. Um, and, uh, that, that was my first taste of, of high frequency. Um, then from there due to injury, I kind of got out of the powerlifting world and went back to more of the like quote unquote science-based splits. So like push pull legs, upper, lower. And now in the last year I've been experimenting with a high frequency bodybuilding setup so like a high frequency full body routine where it isn't just like you're training one lift with high frequency you're pretty much training all the muscles with high frequency so now you guys now, are fully up to speed <laughs> yeah i was gonna say before you get fully into the high frequency stuff i just wanted to mention that i like i feel sick to my stomach right now because the trajectory that you just described and even the year ranges is the exact path i took hmm. and i'm realizing that like if I didn't completely suck at every, like you're the, you're in the parallel universe where I would have actually been good at any of that stuff. And it's making me so angry and sick to my stomach. Um, Cause like, I mean, same thing, like 2012 ish for a couple years there, I got into powerlifting, ended up getting hurt, said, screw it. I guess I'm going to do bodybuilding again. Yeah. It's just, it hurts me to know what could have been if I didn't suck. Now, Eric, you don't have to be so humble. Just out of curiosity, Jeff, how many pro cards do you have? <laughs> right. I have because, a singular because, pro card and it might be expires. <laughs> because you're talking, you're talking to the Bo Jackson of physique sports right now. That's right. That's, that's true. Right. Yeah. And that, to be clear, is Eric and not me. Exactly. That, that is true. I, I, I should stop being so hard on myself. So but before we get into high frequency stuff, like full bore, uh, I have kind of like a philosophical question for you. So you've talked, you mentioned several times in your answer how, you know, you weren't doing whatever was like, quote unquote, evidence based. And you, you know, went through a period of doing that. And, you know, based on the content you put out, you clearly um, stay up to date with the research fairly well and, and value evidence. But one of the things that I like to ask people, uh, and something I think about a lot myself that I personally don't have a great answer to, is when you read research on, you know, gains after different training methods, one of the things you need to keep in mind is, you know, you're, you're looking at rate of progress over, you know, two months, three months, four months, and we don't really know 
whether you can necessarily extrapolate that out and say, oh, this program that gives me more muscle growth over three months will let me eventually grow more muscle over 10 years. So maybe it gets you to a similar point, but it just gets you there a little bit faster. How do you feel about that just personally? So, you know, kind of extrapolating short to moderate term research findings to long term results. Do you think that, you know, methods that tend to show more muscle growth over three months will eventually lead to more muscle growth over 10 years and help you get a little bit closer to your, you know, quote unquote, genetic potential limit? Uh, or do you think that it is just kind of a speed thing and you you're, you kind of wind up in about the same place regardless? Yeah, that's a good question. I think my answer kind of will depend on the mood that I'm in. Like days I'm feeling more nihilistic, I might think, it doesn't really matter as long as you're consistent with it over time. You'll probably hit your natty limit regardless. Um, lately, I think especially now that I feel like I have been having great results with a new protocol, um, I tend to lean maybe the other way, thinking that some methods are inherently more optimal over the long term and probably would push you further than if you were just sticking to the same suboptimal methods but being consistent with them. So for example, like to put it this way, if I was still running, say, my dad's bro split now, I don't think I would be, I would get as far as I would with the program, as I would with the program I'm actually running. Um, So at the moment, I'd say my answer would lean towards, I think you probably can, in some sense, extrapolate that out to say, there are certain methods that are better for more advanced trainees. And if you use them, you can kind of raise your genetic ceiling, if that makes sense. No, fair enough. Uh, And and just, I I kind of feel the same way. It it does very much depend on my mood. Mm -hmm. Um, To follow up on that, and obviously this is a completely unanswerable question objectively, but just how how large of a relative difference do you think that makes? You know, like, do Mm -hmm. you think it is going to be like a night and day difference? Or do you think like, ah, maybe if I train better or more quote unquote optimally in the long run, maybe I wind up 5% or 10% better than I would have otherwise? Well, I would say it's, it's marginal differences. It's, it's, you know, more like the, the five to 10% figure. But I think where this question has its practical value is when you start combining these different methods. And this is something I've noticed. So, you know, throughout like my uh, experience with all of this stuff, I've gone through phases where I become very convinced that this is the thing that matters. So for, you know, we were just talking about max OT training. It was like, you've got to go all out every set and add weight or add reps every workout. Otherwise this stuff isn't going to work at all. Over time, you start experimenting with more stuff and you realize, oh, wait a minute, all this stuff seems to work. And then you, you know, start reading some literature and you realize, oh, you know, the effects of these different things are much smaller than we thought. Maybe it all does just kind of come down to genetics and you can kind of just do whatever. Yeah, as long as you're consistent with it, you'll get there eventually. And, you know, none of this stuff really matters that much. Um, But when I take that fatalistic viewpoint, it really does, I find, cause me to do less and get inferior results. So I think it's when you stack these different layers of optimality. 
um, that you can really move the needle in terms of physique progression. And that's something I've noticed a bit more lately. It's like when I take more of a lackadaisical approach to my nutrition. So for example, it's like, eh, you know, my protein intake, whatever. The standards in the literature are pretty low at this point. I mean, I'd have to try to not really hit those. Um, eh, protein before bed, eh, maybe that makes a small difference, but it's not really worth worrying about. I'll just have a bag of popcorn and call it a day. Eh, pre and post workout nutrition, whatever. Nutrient timing revisited paper from 2014 kind of debunked that. <laughs> and when you start stacking these things together, it's like, well, when you add them up, and you're consistent with all of them, maybe that is what is actually required to take you from where you currently are to you know where you want to be. Um, and so, in that sense, I would say uh, it really it really does make a difference, you know. And and it's when I'm in moods like this that things tend to be firing. So like at the moment, my training is going well. I'm tracking my macros, timing my meals appropriately, and I'm seeing the results for it. And so that leads me to think that maybe in isolation, each one of these individual factors aren't really moving the needle that much. But when you combine them and you really get all your ducks in a row, that's when it can make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, getting back to that, that question that, that Greg asked about, you know, does it all end in the same place, but we're just talking about right. different rates. You know, one of the ways I, this is my second time randomly bringing him up, but when we, when we talked to Mike Tushier, you know, he had a world-class, he, he was a world-class strength athlete when Greg and I were in high school. You know, like, Jeff, you've had a world-class physique for a few years now. You know what I mean? And I feel like you and him are both at that level where the real functional question is, you know, the way he put it, am I out of rocks to turn over? Do I really believe that there's no other strategy out there to be explored that could take me just a little bit further along in my journey? And, and I feel like when you reframe the question that way, there's, there's always something else, right? There's always something you could go try and experiment with that might be able to bring you just a little bit closer to your true absolute ceiling, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I would say even more than that too, though, like there may be, say, you know, there may be rocks that haven't been turned over. So that is to say things that you haven't tried yet that you could try. But there could also be things that you've tried before and have worked for you before, but you're just, for whatever reason, not doing them. And in my case, I think it just comes from laziness or this mindset that, you know, like we said, it's like, does it really matter? Like, I'm so close to my genetic limitation at this point. It's easy to just be nonchalant with everything. Um, but I think that if a lot of people, and I think maybe a lot of your listeners, since it is probably, you know, a more advanced demographic might be in this situation where you feel like you've been doing this for long enough that at this point it really doesn't matter. But if you just make yourself accountable and follow through on the things that you think might matter a bit, like I said, they could add up and that could actually make a profound difference on where you end up. Um, so th there would be two things there, right? You, you know, try out new things that you haven't really tried before. In my case, that would be like this new high frequency thing. And the other thing would be do things that maybe you used to do and you just got lazy and just don't really do anymore. I feel like you're attacking me 
<laughs> that's exactly what I, I need to somehow tap into 20 year old eric that thought bench pressing was the most important thing in his life right i need to Be get back to that because like even if you know even if you can get behind it it just tends to change the way you approach your days the way you approach the gym and i think that that mentality of i'm going to do my best with this can make all the difference and having the opposite mentality which i find a lot of people in this, you know, science-based sphere tend to have, which is more fatalistic, it, it, it can only, I mean, it can only work against you, right? I mean, a lot of the things that we're talking about are at worst neutral to slightly positive. Um, so I, I prefer, at least at the moment, to have a more optimistic view toward those things. Yeah, until your next injury, then you say nothing yeah. matters. It's all <laughs> exactly, a exactly. Yeah, a week from now, man, this will be totally different. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, but I, I do want to get back to you know we, we've kind of hinted at this high frequency training a few times. I know it's something you've put out content about it. What, what exactly does this high frequency training look like for you? What I mean, what 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 what, did, what does it look like in application? Mm -hmm. You're. I think I heard on a podcast that you're running this yourself, Eric, or you at least dabbled in it for a while. Is that right? When I strung a few workouts together, I did it. <laughs> okay, and then okay, I, okay. yeah, <laughs> like I said, I'm being attacked right now by you talking about actually doing stuff that has worked for you. But okay. I, I, I did it for a few weeks and it, it did seem to be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So I, I've played around with a few different ways to do this. I, I kind of borrowed the way I set it up from Eric. So we were in Australia. We both presented at uh, the Ultimate Evidence-Based Fitness Conference there. And this was a, a focus of Eric's presentation. And he, he kind of, I think, presented it more as um, a way of mitigating fatigue during contest prep. It ultimately, to me, sounded like it boiled down to he just doesn't need to do a leg day um, <laughs> with the high-frequency setup. <laughs> um, and in that sense, workouts were just more manageable and you got the same stimulus for less, at least perceived fatigue. Um, so it just made contest prep a bit easier, I suppose, it, it, psychologically, if, if nothing else. Um, and so he didn't really explain in the talk exactly how he had set it up. But the way I understood it was you would take, you know, the volume that you would do on any split. So say a push-pull leg split and just kind of evenly distribute those exercises out throughout the week. Um, so for example, let's say you had your leg day on day one, you'd hit your squat. Day two, you know, you could do your lying leg curl. Day three, you could do your leg press. Day four, do your RDL. And then maybe, you know, hip abductions or something like that on day five. And that would just be, you know, for the lower body, how you could spread it out throughout the week. And if that sounds like it's not quite enough volume, then you could sprinkle in maybe some leg extensions on the same day. You do leg curls or whatever. Um, but that's kind of the general thought is just figure out the volume you need and then space it out throughout the week with this idea in mind that certain exercises are going to have greater recovery demands than others. So like you might not want to, you know, put squats and RDLs one day after another, like you might, might want to have a less damaging exercise to kind of bracket the two of those. Um, so it actually took a bit of experimentation on my end to figure out exactly the right setup. So I felt recovered from day to day, but that's generally how I think about it. 
Well, yeah, because I mean, this, you know, we, we talked about how we got started back in the day. And I mean, the only thing we knew for certain is that you never train a muscle group two days in a row, right? That, mm-hmm. that was the only rule that cannot be broken. But, but inevitably, you must be doing that w- with this split, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when, when I say it, I, I think people picture that I'm hitting a full workout for every body part every day. So it's like I'm training every body part every day. So they picture I'm doing, you know, maybe some kind of truncated chest workout and then some kind of back workout. And then, and they're just like, this is ridiculous, you know? Um, whereas in reality, I mean, if you look at the sessions, it's fairly manageable, like three sets of pull downs one day. And then the next day you do three sets of cable rows. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be that much of a recovery demand from three sets of pull downs. So when you actually look at it on paper with the exercises written out, I don't think it's really a violation of that general recovery principle that would say, you know, you shouldn't train the same exercises on consecutive days. I mean, in other contexts, that's just, that would just be violated all the time. Like, I feel like that's a bodybuilding rule that bodybuilders have, but like other athletes don't really adhere to that. I mean, I I certainly didn't adhere to that in my powerlifting days and I didn't, you know, I did get injured, but (laughs) I don't attribute it to the frequency uh, per se. And I, you know, at the time felt like I was recovering just fine and currently feel like I'm recovering just fine. So I don't think you can look at it in a vacuum and say, you know, this is the rule. It's like, well, it clearly depends on how much volume you're doing, what exercises you're doing and how intensely you're doing it. I feel like this is a very non-evidence-based way of of looking at things, but one of the things you'll you'll notice if you just look around in the world is, um, you know, I'd say probably like IFBB pro bodybuilders have the best forearms in the world, but as a close second, well, a close second would probably be grip grip competitors. As a close third would be manual laborers. If you're yeah. swinging a hammer all day or carrying cinder blocks all day, or, you know, working on a roofing crew and, like, carrying shingles and also swinging a hammer. Those guys get enormous forearms. Uh, like, bigger than bigger than most powerlifters who, you know, mostly just train their forearms deadlifting. Um, and so, like, you know, they're not doing dedicated training for their forearms, but they're getting some degree of stimulus to those muscles every day, but not enough to accrue... To, to accrue the, the type of fatigue debt that would make it to where they couldn't go into work and earn a paycheck the next day. Uh, and, and so it, it seems to me like you're kind of functioning on kind of a similar principle to that of, you know, go in, stimulate the muscles most, most days, but not so much that, you know, they're, they're too worn down to stimulate again the next day. Mm-hmm. Another thing I noticed with this is that when I first started it, Um, I did feel like it wouldn't be sustainable over the long term. And that's because probably just, you know, in part due to my own stubbornness. So I would find it hard to go in the gym and just do, you know, three sets of lat pulldowns and be done because I'm so used to having these really high volume back workouts. So I'd be like, okay, I got to at least throw a horizontal row or some face pulls at the muscle as well. Right. Um, And there might've been this like notion in the back of my head that maybe there is a minimum threshold per session for growth. So I was like, I want to at least play it safe and make sure I hit that. And then also there's probably a minimum effort. So got to make sure I'm pushing it hard enough. And it just ended up being too much initially. 
So um, I kind of started over and was like, okay, I'm for the first couple weeks, I'm going to really adapt to the higher frequency. I'm not going to train as hard as I normally would. Going to do significantly less per session volume, even though per week volume would have been about the same uh, than I normally would. And then once I did that for a couple weeks, I found it was my recovery was so good to the point that I could actually train pretty hard, take some sets to failure. And I didn't feel like it was affecting me in any way the next day. Um, so there's this idea that if you're running a high frequency split, you need to train at a very low effort. And I think that that's true initially, at least for me. But I find once you grow accustomed to it, it's really not that hard to push yourself within a reasonable proximity to failure and still be recovered by the next day. I don't know if I would necessarily recommend that broadly, but that has been my experience so far. It's like the more I get comfortable with the frequency, the more I feel like I can ramp up the intensity and the recovery not feel as overbearing as it did when I first started. I mean, that that is what you would expect, but I feel like there is still this like ongoing perception that like you just can't train hard on a high frequency split, which I, I just haven't found that to be the case except for at the very beginning. You know, you bring up a really good point because a as you mentioned, I have kind of dabbled in some of this stuff and one of the hardest habits to break, like I've done a 25 set arm workout, you know, I've done a good 22 set chest workout. It is really hard if you get in the habit of being a, a you know, a bodybuilder and like an arm day is done when you literally can't lift your arms anymore. If you try to bring that mindset into this kind of high frequency full body stuff, that's a really great way to mess it up and just yeah. have an awful time, right? Like if you don't have that discipline to say, listen, it was three sets of lap pull down, move on. Uh, th that can be something that I, I would anticipate a lot of bodybuilders mess up that transition until they learn the lesson and say, okay, I got to I got to get back on it. Well, I, I think this illustrates a point I've tried to make on the podcast a few times that like a lot of times training advice is very context specific and you can't, you can't just extract what seems to be effective variables from one training routine, plop it into another training routine and expect things to go well. So the example I always tend to use is like, Westside style training has worked really, really well for a lot of people. Shaco style training has worked really, really well for a lot of people. But if you combined the super high, crazy intensity of Westside with the frequency and really, really high volumes of Shaco, you're going to kill yourself. Like that, that you can, you can take two effective things, take the effective things from them, mash them together and wind up with something way, way worse and less effective than either of the two things you were drawing from. And so that, that sounds pretty similar to what you're, what, well, what both of you are describing right here. Big time. Now, now Jeff, so when did you start uh, this high frequency training split? How long have you been doing it? So I did my first workout. I think the first workout I did was actually with Eric. Um, and you can watch that video on my channel if you like. Um, so that would have been in the summer of 2019, I think maybe July. Uh, so whatever that is, six, seven months, something like that. So since then, I, I ran a few different variations on it. And the one I've landed on is this kind of, I guess, minimalistic in the sense that uh, you're not trying to balance too much at one time. Um, somewhere in there, I tried to sprinkle in 
a bit more of a powerlifting focus, and I just found it was a little bit too much with the high frequency. Um, and uh, yeah, but yeah, it's been probably about six, seven, six, seven months, something like that. Six or seven months, and at first, you, you noted that you kind of had to adjust how you viewed, you know, distributing that volume and intensity. Have you found that as you eased into it, as your recovery improved, that volume, like weekly volume, kind of drifted up over time? Yeah, uh, a bit. So I, I write my programs ahead of time, so I naturally try to do that. I naturally try to either increase the reps or add a set here and there, especially for body parts that I'm working on. Um, but I feel like my tolerance has increased, but I've been more, I think, focused on the effort side of that equation before turning to increasing volume. Um, I've been trying to make sure that uh, I'm, I'm pushing myself sufficiently hard because I think, you know, I don't think there's anything, I should say this up front, I don't think there's anything really special about training at a higher frequency, certainly not special enough to override training intensity. Um, so let's just imagine it were the case that I was never able to get past that early hump where I wasn't, you know, I was having to leave four or five reps in the tank for every set. I don't think it would be worth it in that case. I just don't think there's that much of an inherent advantage to high training frequency. So what you got to think about is there has to be a way that I still am able to push myself sufficiently hard if I'm going to run this split. Otherwise, I don't think it's worth it. So that's been kind of my focus before turning to, you know, really ramping up volume or whatever. Um, because at, at my stage, I kind of know the amount of volume I think I need. And I think once you start throwing a lot of variables at this it's like okay you know i've already it's, it's only been six months so i've already upped the frequency now i'm really you know taking sets a little closer to failure let's just go ahead and ramp up the volume too it's like you kind of got to pick and choose your variables uh, wisely you know no i i got you that makes a ton of sense so one of the things this reminded me of is one of the concepts that I've seen floating around in the quote-unquote evidence-based fitness community, I've seen James Krieger talk about this, seen Minnow Henselman's talk about this, is the idea that, you know, we we often talk about volume on like a weekly basis. So how many sets per muscle group per week are you doing? One of the things that, that they brought up is when you look at the literature, it seems like maybe we should be talking more about like a concept of, of more like optimal volume per session where, you know, th there's a, a fairly like low to reasonable per session volume that seems to be associated with the best results. Um, so, you know, if, if you split 30 sets per week up as like, you know, six sessions of five sets, that may be a little bit better than, you know, just one session of 30 sets, but maybe similar to like three sessions of 10 sets. Uh, are, are you aware of that general concept and, uh, just overall, what, what do you think about it if you are aware of it? Yeah, for sure. So there's, um, that paper out of the Barbalo lab, which has come under scrutiny re recently. I don't know if you're aware of this, the, the new hip thrust and squat study. Have you guys, have you guys looked into that? Have you spoke about that on the podcast yet? We haven't spoken about it on the podcast, but okay. we this won't will, be the time. <laughs> we will likely have something to say about it at some point. Okay, I'm really excited for that because I feel like there's been a lot of really interesting 
uh, discussion around that study. Um, so I'd love to hear your guys' take on it. There um, have been a lot of takes, and all of them are bad. <laughs> all of them are hot. <laughs> Muy caliente. <laughs> okay, that's that's a good teaser right there. They're all bad, so I'm excited to hear the good one. <laughs> Um, so anyway, out of that lab, so uh, I know they, they published a study, it was like evidence for an upper ceiling uh, of, of volume uh, per workout. So um, based on that, it's, it seems to be that, it, yeah, that is what you should look at. You know, you should consider how much volume you're doing in a session, not just in a, in a week. Um, and I, I think even maybe more than that, uh, you, you want to also consider how long the sessions are taking like for me you know say i'm doing upper lower twice a week right uh, so upper twice a week lower twice a week with the amount of volume i need to do sometimes those sessions just go on and on i mean some of the leg days it's like you've got squats rdls lunges leg curls calves maybe abs at the end it's like sometimes the, the workout just feels unbearable in a sense so even if there's nothing, say, inherently physiologically superior to spacing that volume out so that you have, like you said, a more low to moderate per session volume, psychologically, I think it actually does make a big difference. And that's probably been the single biggest benefit I've noticed to adopting this training style um, is just the fact that I don't need to have a two-hour leg day to get all my weekly volume crammed in across two set two sessions it's like once you get sufficiently advanced on these split routines in order to get the volume you need the workouts are gonna be fairly grueling and toward the end of these sessions no matter what kind of dedication you have i feel like your performance is going to start to slip at a certain point i mean that may not be true of everyone but i've found that with this high frequency setup i don't notice that same psychological fatigue for lack of a better word yeah i mean it, it obviously makes the workouts feel really fresh right you know you're you, you do your three or four sets of whatever you're you're doing for chess that day maybe they go well maybe they don't but you're like all right time to move on and, and mm -hmm. you're on to a different muscle group and you can at least switch things up a little bit within the workout i mean there, there's nothing worse than when you do like the first two sets of your leg day and you're like well those sucked, but 90 more minutes where that came from. Exactly, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah. It's tough. That's the worst place to be. So, so you've been doing this for a while. You've, you've, you know, troubleshot things. You've, you've kind of figured out the structure that works for you. So, you know, ha having been through it for a while now, what are some of the pros and cons and ultimately, you know, what kind of results are you getting from it? So I did a full video a couple of weeks ago, uh, recapping all the pros and cons. I think I had four cons that I went through and eight pros. Um, so maybe you can link that video below because off the top of my head, I might not remember them all and it might bore people who might not be interested in that. But um, the cons mostly came from me in the first couple weeks. So like I said, there was that trial and error period where I felt like I was doing too much. I was getting too sore. I was too fatigued. The soreness part was a big one for me because I'm one of those people who just get super sore and it lasts forever. Like I can do RDLs and be sore for a week. I've had to miss 
school, like when I was in university, I've <laughs> had to miss lectures. <laughs> no joke. And I was a dedicated student <laughs> because of leg day <laughs> due to soreness. I've been on crutches from leg day. Um, <laughs> Holy that's shit. not an exaggeration. Yeah, it's crazy how that, sore that, I get. That's some Tom Platt shit right there. <laughs> right. I mean, I used to train really, really hard, um, but I still think there's got to be some genetic component to it because, you know, even if I take even after like a deload week or I take a couple of days off, I come back and hit a leg day, guaranteed I'll be sore for four or five days after. Um, it's crazy. So what initially was a major downside of this, because, you know, you, you can imagine someone like me, I, I would train my chest, let's say on Monday. Now I've got to do flies on Tuesday. My chest is still sore from Monday, right? So it's like, ugh, it not only does it feel uncomfortable, it's just like that there's a potential safety concern and also maybe a performance concern too, right? I mean, pain has to inhibit performance, right? Whether it's soreness or not. So um, that that seemed like a big negative and it was like, eh, is this even really worth it? Like maybe for someone with my predisposition to intense soreness, maybe it just isn't good for me. But I'm really glad I stuck with it because now I pretty much never get sore at all, which is great. Um, so... Uh, it was funny because when I said that in the video, there was a commenter who was like, Jeff goes to interview, please tell me about some of your weaknesses. And it's like, well, if you listen closely, my weaknesses are actually strengths. <laughs> and that was kind of how I presented it in the video. Um, but that was probably the biggest thing that I noticed. Um, I know I spoke about workout length. Um, the workout sometimes, it depends on the day, but on some days I've got say deadlifts and bench press to do in the same session and then still you know some isolation work for other muscles a bit of back work whatever um, because you have to do a pyramid warm-up for the deadlifts and then also a pyramid warm-up for the bench that can be time-consuming if you're working up to pretty heavy loads which you know relative to maybe other people I probably am um, so I found some of those workouts can drone on a bit. So for people who, you know, don't have a lot of time to spend in the gym, like for me, it's usually like on average, probably about 90 minutes per workout. Um, people who want to be in the gym less than that, maybe you'd be better off, you know, doing, a, an upper lower three day a week split or something like that, you know? Um, but for me, you know, I love being in the gym. I've got the schedule to be able to do it. So it's not really so much of a downside. Um, that was pretty much it for me. I know a lot of people, when they level their criticisms at this, they'll mention joint stress. Um, and that could very well be valid. I haven't found it to be the case with me. And that's speaking as someone who has a history of injury. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this because I would imagine you could you could flip it the other way too, right? You could say, well, if you're going to put all your leg work on just one day, so you've got squats, leg press, lunges, leg extensions. I mean, that's just so much acute stress on the knee that that could lead to, you know, an acute episode, right? Whereas the other side would say, well, if you're going to space those out, it's so much cumulative stress on the joints that it could lead to an overuse injury, right? Um I don't know if one is necessarily better than the other. And I think personally, I think it depends on how hard are you pushing those sets? What's your technique like? How are you arranging the exercises and so on and so forth? So I haven't found the joint concern to be legitimate personally, but I 
could, I can see how people would raise that as an argument against it. Greg, what do you think? Oh, man. So I'm sure <laughs> a bunch of physical therapists are going to send me hate mail for uh -oh. this answer. Uh, injury doesn't exist. Pain is all in the mind. Caveat, etc. Uh, my general, my general observation with high frequency stuff is that basically if an overuse injury does start developing and you keep training with pretty high frequency, you can make things really bad, really quick, um, much worse and much quicker than you would with a lower training frequency, just because, you know, you've you've caused more stress to whatever tissue it is than it has proven to be capable of recovering from and adapting to on, you know, in the short term. And then you just keep adding more and more stress to it. Uh, it can't, you know, fully adapt and recover. Things get worse and worse and worse pretty quickly because um, you're applying that stress, you know, every single day or four or five times a week. Versus, you know, if you irritate something, but then it's going to be a week before you are, you know, exposing that tissue to stress again, it does have a fair amount of time to, to start getting on the mend. Um, versus with a lower frequency, I think that there is, there are some more inherent safeguards in play from, against making a bad situation worse just because you are exposing the tissues to stress less frequently. But what, how it seems to me at least is that on kind of like a per exposure basis, your risk is higher. Because um, one of the things that can happen is as you start accruing a significant amount of fatigue, uh, you, you know, whether that be in the gym or whether that be playing a sport, uh, but as the muscles start fatiguing, as they start uh, getting damaged, as you have more neural fatigue, um, motor control starts getting worse and worse and worse. And then like that, that not loss of motor control, but those decrements in motor control can begin shifting stress from very robust contractile tissues that can take a lot of stress and handle it just fine to soft tissues that, uh, you know, tendons and, and more so ligaments that shouldn't necessarily be exposed to that stress. Um, so I think that, you know, certainly on a, on a per unit basis, uh, or like on a per workout basis, your risk of aggravating something is probably higher with a, with a lower training frequency. So it's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's mostly a trade-off like, um, and I think that trade-off can largely be mitigated if you're not an idiot with a high volume approach, you know, when something does start bothering you, you know, like, Hey, I, I need to just like maybe not put stress on my bicep tendon for a while or take it very, very easy with exercises that would load, say, my bicep tendon if that's what was bothering me. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I, I can't pretend like I have citations for, well, I do, I would be able to provide citations for some of that, but not for literally every part of that entire thesis. But that's that's broadly been my uh, my observation of how training frequency relates, especially to overuse injury. I gotcha. When I did really high frequency squatting, you know, I've I've got a Greg knows I've got a history of back problems. Actually, when I when I tried some of the really high frequency stuff more recently, 
I did hurt my back and that's why I fell off the wagon, but it was not because of the high frequency stuff. It was because I was an idiot and <laughs> thought I was stronger than I am, which happens sometimes. <laughs> but um, in any case, when I was doing really high, I was squatting like four or five days a week. My back has never felt better. It, like I felt so good because I mean, I was managing the loads properly. And, uh, but yeah, it, I, I, I did have concerns about it going into it, but it was like, as long as you're managing managing those loads really well, the fact that you're going back a few days in a row doesn't, at least in my experience, didn't really seem to be inherently problematic. You know, now Jeff, um, if you were to say like there's a certain person or, or a certain type of person that this high frequency stuff is great for, or maybe a certain type of person that should avoid it, like who is this good for and who is it bad for, in your opinion? Um, I would say. Again, I, I'm I'm not really comfortable saying it's like good in the sense that it's like definitely superior to other protocols. Um, like for me, I think at this point I've kind of tried everything else, and it's like, hey, you know, well, here's another rock I can unturn, right? That that's kind of the way that I look at it, um, and I have just so happened to find all these things about it that I really like. Um, I would say someone who is new to the gym definitely doesn't need it. Uh, you know, a couple days a week training frequency is going to be plenty for most people for potentially all their training career, right? Um, so I wouldn't recommend this for, for people who are new to the gym. I'm still not sure I would recommend it for people who have concurrent strength and hypertrophy goals. Like, I think you want to use high frequency either as a strength specific thing where you're trying to build up maybe one weak lift. So like if your bench really sucks, you could use high frequency to try to, you know, really hone in on your technique and get some more practice with that. Um, and by the same token, you know, if, if you've tried everything with so-called hypertrophy training, um, and you want something new to give a shot, you could give this a shot and see if you find the same things that I've found. But I think if you're wanting to do both of those things concurrently, like you want to get really strong and you also want to get jacked, I would favor a, a different setup than this because I just find you're just, you know, kind of throwing too much at yourself at once. So for so-called power builders, I don't know if I would recommend it. And that's from, I'm speaking from experience because I tried to integrate more strength stuff. So I'd, you know, squat a couple times a week, bench a couple times a week, more like I would on, you know, like a hybrid setup uh, with this. But I think you should try to direct your goal with high frequency either toward quote unquote pure hypertrophy or pure strength. Now that isn't to say I don't, I haven't, I actually have still gotten stronger, but I'm only squatting, benching and deadlifting once a week. Uh, even on this high frequency split. And that's on purpose because those exercises, especially for me, are harder to recover from. Um, and interestingly, uh, I think what has worked better for me is adding top sets. So I will do a heavy double or triple before I back off and do my, you know, submaximal volume work for those exercises. And I found that that on its own has been enough to lead to strength gains for me, even though I've been approaching this as a so-called hypertrophy setup, you know? So just, just to clarify. So I think I wouldn't recommend it for beginners and I wouldn't recommend it for people who have 
concurrent strength and hypertrophy goals and are trying to maximize on both of those the best they can. Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine logistically, it's hard to make all those different pieces work, you know, within this type of program. Yeah. Now, um, if, if you send me that link, we can go ahead and you mentioned there's a video where you talk about the pros and cons. We'd be happy to put that in the description here so people can go get more information about the high frequency uh, training approach that you take. We did have some diet related questions for you, um, but we want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to ask the one that I find most interesting. And this <laughs> okay. is something Greg and I have talked about before. My question for you is, have you ever done just an absolutely sick dreamer bulk? <laughs> I knew that's what you were going to ask. Of course I'm going to ask. <laughs> um, so, of course. Of course I have, Eric. You know my history. Uh, dreamer bulk goes hand in hand with the bro split early on. Um, awesome. So, well, let me say this. I, when I first started out um, with bodybuilding, my dad and, and mom, were, they were both pretty hardcore clean eaters. So like typical bodybuilding type diets, like five or six meals a day, protein shakes in between meals, that kind of thing. Um, so that was where I started out. It was very clean. Um, but when I did my first bodybuilding show uh, in 2009, at the time, the climate was after your show, you try to gain as much weight as you possibly can to the point that my training partner and I, we would cut at the same time. We would have a competition to see who could gain the most weight after the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really solid idea. That's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. It was literally like we, we called it, um, we, we would try to race to 200 pounds. But the thing is, is when I would get in contest shape at the time, I'd be around 140. So I was a bantam weight. Um, and he would get down to like maybe one, the high 160s or 170. So he only had to gain about 30 pounds and I had to gain 60. Um, so, so what actually ended up happening, this happened like year, a couple of years, um, was I'd get 40 pounds on and then I just, it didn't matter what I did, it no more would go on. So I would just cap out at around 180. So plus 40 from my show, which on a guy who's like five, four five, five, that is a significant increase in mass in a couple short weeks. Uh, so that, that, those were my best days as far as dreamer bulking goes. Um, and probably the best days of your life. There, there's nothing better <laughs> than being in the midst of a full blown dreamer bulk. Well, it's interesting because back then it, the way I framed it psychologically was purely positive. It was like the more you gained, the more mass you were going to have for your next show. Um, which on some level was probably true. I'm not totally sure because then I had to diet so hard <laughs> to get it off. Um, uh, but it was, you're right. It was, it was a very fun, innocent, kind of naive way to approach it. And yeah, I do miss those days sometimes. So the reason I asked it, I, I could just hear the tone in your voice change as you were again, talking yourself into thinking it was awesome. So yeah. Greg and I have meant, have talked about this before, I think. If you talk to people who are like pretty experienced, they're like, oh yeah, I did a dreamer bulk. It was pretty dumb. And yet everyone who got big and strong has done it. And we're like, <laughs> maybe there was something to it. You know, like every single person is like, oh, it's totally unnecessary, but it is the one thing that every big strong person has done. And it's, it's impossible to ignore that as, to some extent, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's if nothing question. else, it's a simple way to be like, hey, if you want to put on 20 pounds of muscle, gain 60 pounds, you'll, you'll get close, right? 
I think it depends on whether or not you've like taken the red pill. Is that the right use of that expression? And like realize it, that it really depends how you're <laughs> attempting to use that expression. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It, it's it's either it's either waking up and pulling yourself out of the matrix or deciding you really hate women. Those are the two definitions of that. Let's ignore the 8chan interpretation or wherever it is they use that. So I meant the former. Um, So basically, what I mean by that is, do you realize yet that this is going to have to all come off, you know? Because once you realize that, it might not be such a good idea. But once you're naive to that fact and you think, like, because at the time, you really think that this is all good mass, you know? And you just got another eight weeks to get it off. Then in reality, you're like, oh boy, this is going to be a half a year prep to get back down there again, right? Um, yeah. So it, it depends on your psychology. But, you know, um, the interesting thing is, is like, it was so enjoyable for me when I thought it was a good thing. But then once I switched to more of like an if it fits your macros type approach and realized that there was such thing as reverse dieting that I should be doing... Then I framed it as entirely negative, despite the fact that it still happened. Like after the competition, I never really, I don't think ever found a way to control my insatiable appetite other than to just gain the weight back. And the only difference I found was psychological. Like early on, I framed it as a good thing. I was getting all these sick gains. But then later it was like, oh, no, if I gain so much, I'm going to have to work so hard to diet back down the next time. And, you know, I should be reverse dieting and all this kind of stuff. Um, So whether you interpret it in a positive or negative light, I just think depends on what you what you know. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think ultimately, you know, this is a topic that has fascinated me for a while, specifically looking at weight gain after a diet ends. And some of the research I did uh, in grad school, you know, what we generally found is people tend to preferentially put on a lot of fat in that immediate four to six weeks after. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's probably a middle ground um, where it's like you want to gain some weight back if you want to have some sanity and not have just an outrageous appetite. Mm-hmm. So th- there's got to be a middle ground between like fighting that weight gain and making it a competition <laughs> where, <Yeah. laughs> where I think that, that that's probably the sweet spot. But I was the same way as you. The first time I did a dreamer bulk, I was like, I couldn't believe my luck. This was before I found out <laughs> that muscle gains and strength gains weren't necessarily the same thing. So as my deadlift went up, I got really fat and I was like, oh, this is all muscle. Right. And then one of my roommates at the time was like, hey, Eric, just wanted to let you know, I love you. You're a good friend, but you're really fat. And <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to tell you except me. And so that that was the intervention that it took for me to get out of uh, out of dreamer balking. That just reminded me of uh, Greg's story with his roommate, where um, you ha- you put him on a diet, and he was supposed to be drinking protein shakes, but he was in <laughs> fact drinking weight gainer shakes. Is that not, did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, not not my roommate, one of oh. my classmates. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, long story short, needed to lose. Uh, a reasonable amount of weight pretty quickly um you know probably like three or four pounds a week uh said hey man really the only thing that's going to give you a fighting chance here is a protein sparing modified fast (laughs) explained to him in detail how to set that up uh gave him a, a fairly lengthy list of adequate food choices for that and uh 
turns out it it wasn't going as well as he was hoping uh he wasn't he wasn't shedding weight at the rate he expected that he was um i had told him boneless skinless chicken breasts and protein shakes turned out uh bone in skin on (laughs) chicken thighs were a lot cheaper at walmart and he already had mass gainer on hand (laughs) and so his diet for the previous three weeks had been bone-in skin-on chicken thighs and mass gainer shakes uh and he was he was shocked that he wasn't losing weight as fast as he hoped i was i was crying the first time i heard that because i i have a similar story i had a a friend of mine who when well first of all when we first discovered that if it fits your macros was a thing like we thought this was the, the holy grail of nutrition right like we couldn't believe this existed we could eat whatever we wanted um or whatever so anyway at this point it was um you know it's still new to us and so i gave him macros to follow um and he just i was like it's so crazy that you're not losing weight on this and as it turns out he didn't realize that you had to track fluids it was only solid food that he was tracking so he was drinking like three or four glasses of orange juice with every meal not sorry three or four glasses of orange juice per day uh, like a glass with every meal and i'm just like how can you not you know realize that but in retrospect it's like you know it was around the same time that people would ask you know do you need to track all sources of protein or only complete protein sources like do you need to count the calories from protein and bread and stuff like that like it wasn't like no one had a clear idea of just like yeah track it all counts (laughs) you know yeah there there were like I, i remember thinking the same thing like if it fits your macros was just a complete life changer but there was that time where a lot of people first started adopting it where there was like no understanding of how to actually use it and there was a lot of really frustrated people all right so that greg we're keeping our tally that's another big strong person who did in fact do a dreamer bulk so well here here's i think the most important question did you come in bigger at your next show well actually um i i was the same weight but considerably more conditioned so i guess that's but bigger. not as mu- not as much as you'd hope, though. And <laughs> I'm going to shed a bit of skepticism on this because I recently, uh, people who follow me will know, um, did an experiment. It's basically dreamer bulk, except I called it bear mode. So the idea, I got this from a friend of mine. Um, he, he's a, a YouTuber as well, uh, Alex uh, from the channel Alpha Destiny. And it's this idea that if you're natural and you want to look big, you know, walking around in clothes, this kind of thing, then it's a requirement that you be at a higher body fat percentage. So he says somewhere in the like 15 to 20% body fat zone. And then to disguise the fat or to disguise the fact that you've got all this like fluff on your body, you grow body hair, which kind of adds the illusion of like a graininess to the physique or whatever. Right. Um, so I, I experimented with this, got up to my you know usual dreamer ball cap of 180 or whatever. Um, and I think that because I'm so advanced in my training at this point that like it I honestly don't think it made that much of a difference um, in in muscle mass. So if you're if you're gonna do it, I would say to do it earlier on. Um, I feel like it's more likely to have a significant impact when you're still primed to build muscle, obviously, than later on. And I've grown 
because of this, increasingly skeptical of the idea that dreamer bulks do much of anything once you're nearing your uh, genetic limitation. Yeah, I feel um, I feel like I should put a caveat in here. I definitely don't think dreamer bulks are a universally good idea. I, I think the reason I ask it is because Greg and I always find it funny that every person you ask will say, ah, oh, definitely don't do it. And then you say, did you? And they go, oh, hell yeah. Uh -huh, <laughs> you know uh -huh, what I mean? Uh -huh. but, and, but, and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> right, right. But, but no, I, logically speaking, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't have to overshoot your calories by that much to put on muscle. So for the three of you who are listening to this for actual information out there, I'm not saying you should dream or bulk. We just think it's funny that everyone says definitely don't, but hell yeah, I did. <laughs> All right. We, another little set of questions here for you, and then we'll let you go for the day. Um, obviously, you put out really, really sick content, um, putting out really killer videos on YouTube all the time. And I was hoping to get a little bit of insight into how your creative process works. Like, you know, how do you decide what topics you're going to cover? Is it is it just kind of like whatever you're living for your fitness work, like whatever you're trying at the time, like that's up next for content? Um, so thanks, man. I appreciate that. It, it does. It means a lot coming from you guys. Um, so thank you. Um, when it comes to content for me, I, I've got an enormous list in my phone of topics and they just they tend to come to me randomly like uh, it might be something stupid I read in a comment and I'm like, oh, I need to clarify this or, or whatever. Or it could just be another article that someone else posted and I'm like, oh yeah, I could probably do a different spin on that or whatever. So I just keep this running list in my phone of, of cool ideas. Um, so I, I never have the issue that I find a lot of content creators have, which is fear of running out of ideas. I, I, that is just like so far in the future to me. And I plan my content out well in advance so like i know exactly what videos i'm filming and uploading for the next two or three months at least and i've got a general plan of how i want my content to look for all of 2020 um so there's a lot of planning um and there's no shortage of ideas when it comes to the specific upload strategy or what videos i'm going to make and how i'm going to time them and everything um there's a model of content strategy on YouTube. Uh, I actually don't know what it's called, but you could call it the Triple H model. So you kind of want to think of like the wrestler, Triple H. I was, I was um, going <laughs> to yeah, chime in with that. Perfect. So you kind of want to think of your channel like an actual TV channel in that it has multiple different shows that might appeal to different audiences to different degrees. And you can think of your videos as three different t bits of content so you have first hero content um so like superhero content this is a type of video that would go viral so it would attract new people to your channel who have never heard of you before but it's enticing enough that they'd click it and watch it and like it and then subscribe um so that that's those types of videos are big for outreach they tend to be you know controversial topics or or things that just have mainstream appeal so like if we were to start a beef like i listened to that episode where you guys were like just beef with someone that's the that's the content strategy in and of itself that would probably fall under the hero category or like a ten thousand calorie challenge or natty or not videos like those tend to be hero videos in fitness spaces um 
And I try to do those occasionally. Like for me, they tend to be on body parts or topics that a lot of people want to know about. So like ab videos tend to do particularly well, like arm videos, bicep stuff, like the typical clickbaity videos. So, and those, those are important from a growth perspective because, you know, I'm not saying that they're required to get people watching, but like it's a very saturated space. And if you're trying to get new people into the channel, you, you, sometimes it's just, if you think it's an evil, maybe a necessary evil to do those types of videos. So, so that would be the first type, hero videos. The other type would be hub videos. So those are videos that you just make for your current audience. So that could be like a training vlog, an update on how things are going with my diet, physique update, um, or a topic that's a little more niched. So something that might not have mainstream appeal, but my audience might get a lot out of. So like say that the, the recap videos that I do for mass, like some of those topics your average gym goer might not necessarily be interested in it, but there's a subset of my subscribers who really are. Um, and the intention there is not to go viral. You're just trying to make the best content that you can for people who are interested in what you have to say. And then the third type would be a help video. So this would be like how to bench press, how to do a lat pull down or whatever. So like things that they may not be particularly exciting, but they're things that people would search for and click on if they want to figure out how to do something. So, you know, how to tie a tie, um, how to change a tire, you know, those types of videos um, would be the third category. And so I try to have a nice mix of those types of videos on my channel and I plan the topic according to what category the video would fall into. And when you make those videos, um, do you do your own video editing? Um, I, so I have an editing assistant, um, for the last couple years, um, up until that point, I would probably spend like sometimes as much as like 50, 60 hours per video just on editing. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, man. uh, because at the time I was like, I, I, I totally self-taught. So I was like, how do I get the, how do I get it to highlight <laughs> this part of the study? So I'd have to like, and sometimes it's not clear what you should search for. It's like, I don't know, click sound effect with slight echo. It's like, how do you know what to even look for to emulate an effect you might've seen somewhere else or whatever. So it was just like massively time consuming. And then you're trying to figure out, you know, what plugins you need and this sort of stuff. So yeah, the editing process was super time consuming um, for me initially. So now my videographer and editor and I kind of split the load. So I've cut that time down from probably like 50 to 60 hours per video on like, you know, a good video to maybe like five to 10 hours per video of just editing. And for me, it's usually like the, the creative kind of like finishing touches. So like I like to do the animation, some of the motion graphics, some of the sound effects and uh, my videographer will do the basic trimming um, process the audio, um, color grade, place the B-roll, that kind of thing. So we've made it much more efficient, uh, which, which is fantastic for me as a creator because it was just not sustainable for me initially. Definitely. Yeah. When, when you were in that process of becoming self-taught, were there any good resources out there that you, that you found for anyone who might be interested in getting into it? Um, there's no one place that I went. I would say to just watch content closely and try to mirror it. Like it's kind of the same advice I'd give people for posing. Like when I learned how to pose, 
I didn't have any one place, like any tutorial or anything like that that I went to. I just watched my my favorite posers. Like I would watch Dexter Jackson pose and then I would go to the mirror and try to emulate every single move that he did. Uh, similar thing with editing. It's like there are certain channels that I would watch. Like uh, I, re I really like the way Vox edit edits their videos. Uh, there's a channel called The Nerd Writer. He does fantastic editing. Uh, Veritasium is a science-based channel that I've you know, borrowed some inspiration from um, a bunch of others too. And I just like, will see an effect and be like, oh, that's really cool. I think I could do that in this sort of fitness context. And then it's just a lot of patience. Like you, you have to give yourself time to experiment, look back, be like, ugh, that doesn't look like the way I wanted it to. Let me see if there's another effect I can use here. And um, a lot of it just comes through, through I think, trial and error and, um, familiarizing yourself with what looks good on other successful channels, um, paying close attention to that. Yeah. One of the things about your videos, aside from just the production quality is you do try to make them very much evidence-based a lot of times. Do you have a special process in place for like your, your process for collecting and evaluating evidence, or is it just a whole lot of time on PubMed basically? Um, so I actually have a, a research assistant at this point, too, who kind of helps me collect the body of literature the best I can. So a lot of people don't realize this with my videos, like, you know, maybe four or five studies might make the final cut that I kind of, you know, ex maybe explain the methods on a little bit, give a bit of background, maybe list a limitation or two, and then a practical takeaway. Um, but when I start a topic, my uh, assistant will send me pretty much like usually it's around 20 to 25 studies like if there's a systematic review he'll make sure to include you know one of those in there um and then i'll kind of go through everything and i would imagine it's probably fairly similar to what you do with mass except you're doing it more in chronological order whereas i'm trying to be like okay what is the, the best overall picture i can get from the body of literature on any given topic and then i start really trimming away and the trimming away part is the part that I find hard because sometimes I'll write a script for a video or I'll have, you know, my notes of the summaries of all the different studies. And I'm like, this is important and I'd like to talk about it, but it's going to take me 10 minutes. And I just, that would just absolutely kill my views because people just don't have the attention span for it. So from an outreach and a content creation perspective, you, you just have to consider the platform that you're posting to and on youtube people want the information delivered in a form that's practical and that they can understand that's kind of snappy um, and so that filtering down process is something i've had to learn over time um, and so uh yeah to get back to your original question um for me now i feel like i've been reading the literature for long enough that like you know if i'm gonna do a video on an exercise or a body part or um, a, a you know training volume or something like that. I know I know where to look. Like I'll do a, a quick search in mass. I'll do a search on James Krieger's research review. Read his you know if it's a video on frequency, I'll read his frequency bible. Go through the reference trail there. Pick out a few studies, maybe ones that I, I found to be particularly high in quality or more interesting, and cover those in a little more detail. Um, but there's just so many good resources out there like mass for example and these other research reviews that i don't need to do 
uh, all that legwork myself. And then when I combine that with my, my assistant who helps me out, it's just, I've been able to cut that process down to be pretty quick. So you mentioned the duration of your videos on YouTube. I don't claim to be a, a content strategy expert, but a lot of our market research indicates the sweet spot for a lot of stuff is usually about four hours. We've got a lot of people who keep telling us our podcasts are too short and we got to get that four hour threshold. So that's free advice, take it or leave it. So for me, I find once it starts getting in the 10 to 15 minute range, uh, performance takes a pretty big hit. Um, for me, the sweet spot is around like seven to 10 minutes, um, which admittedly it is tough to do a topic justice in that time frame, but I, ne I try to hold myself to a standard that I'm not going to, I try to, if there's limitations to a study that are relevant, I do everything in my power to at least mention them. Like I'm not, I'm doing my best not to just say this study found X, there it is, take that information and now go do this. You know what I mean? Um, so it, the time constraint thing is, is tricky because to do some topics justice, you, you almost need, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. And if I really do think I need that amount of time, I will take that extra time and just take the hit on the view count, which I think is worth it. Um, but again, that kind of gets back to the type of video that I'm trying to make. Like, am I trying to reach a lot of people with some good information here? Or am I trying to cater to more of that, like, eh, skeptical, really, truly interested in science portion of my audience, in which case they, they don't mind watching a longer video from me that really goes into the weeds more. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so j just kind of one question to tack onto this. So this, uh, this interview has been, you know, pretty, pretty kind so far, but now it's time to really hold your feet to the fire. Um, <laughs> Not really, but one of you the... started. You hold on. You started calling this interview with calling me a fake natty. So <laughs> let's not get it twisted. Well, the, the patron saint of the fake natty, <laughs> right? Yeah, true, but, true, true. But in a in in an overall loving way, I would <laughs> right, say. Right. Right. Um, but yeah. So on the topic of say like your body part guide videos, one of the one of the few criticisms I frequently see leveled at you, um, just various places on the internet is a lot of people seem to be of the idea that either you rely on EMG studies too much for exercise recommendations or uh, like interpret EMG research uncritically. My, I, I mean, I, I've seen some of those videos and my feeling was always that like you probably understand the methods better than you explain in the video, probably due to length constraints like you just talked about. Um, but that is something that I see people bring up a fair amount when your name gets mentioned. So would you like to talk about that just a little bit? So, you know, how you evaluate, say, EMG research compared to longitudinal data um, and how that, you know, just how different different types of evidence affect your thinking in general and how you use EMG research specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hear that a nice bit too. And when I hear it, it's like, you'd almost think that all my videos are just peppered with all this EMG evidence and I'm making strong recommendations based off those. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more of a selection bias in the sense that 
the videos that have been the most successful are obviously the ones that most people are watching. And they just so happen to be these more, you know, clickbaity type videos where it's like, you know, the best way to train biceps or whatever. And if I'm doing an overhaul of all the research on biceps, I mean, invariably, you're gonna have to cover the, the EMG evidence that's on it. Um, and so I think that if you look at my content as a whole, there's not, I, I don't think there's nearly as much EMG evidence in there as people who levy this criticism at me might think. And I think this tends to come from people who aren't maybe closely following my content, but maybe just watch those body part videos, which admittedly, they are my most popular videos, but they occupy a pretty small subset of what I do. Like I've done interviews with all, with all you guys, lots of other experts in the field. I have lots of videos on nutrition and videos on just like gen most of my videos lately have been on just general programming stuff where I'm not looking at EMG evidence at all. It's not even an afterthought. It's just not included. Um, and when you look at, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I did this whole series on YouTube called the fundamental series. And I did it with the sole intention of framing how my entire methodology looks from the bottom up. And I said, I'm not going to, you know, it, it, it's almost feels wrong to clickbait those videos um, in the same way that I would a body part video because it's like, well, this is meant to be just pure information, uh, you know, and it's just me in front of a whiteboard and no clickbait, nothing like that. And they're some of my most least popular videos, but I think they really go through exactly how it is I think about training from the bottom up. So it's like, you know, you've got sustainability and longevity. That's the first thing combined with uh, safety. You need to uh, apply an appropriate effort in the gym because it doesn't matter how well you've got all the other stuff set up. If you're not training hard, then none of the other stuff is going to work. And then, you know, you've got uh, progressive overload, prioritization, and then all the other acute training variables like volume, intensity, frequency. Exercise selection is like way up at the top, right? So already relative to the other stuff, I think exercise selection is not a priority in my own uh, hierarchy. And then when it comes to exercise selection, which, you know, EMG evidence would be a subset of, I actually wouldn't put a lot of stock in EMG. I, what I, the way I think about it is that you want to think about the exercise in terms of its biomechanics. So biomechanically, does it make sense that this muscle would activate the muscle you're trying to target? And does it do it, you know, more in a lengthened, does it apply more tension in a lengthened position or a shortened position or what have you? In the case of biarticular muscles, there's some, some concerns there with exercise selection. And I would always default to biomechanics before the EMG evidence. When EMG evidence matches with biomechanics, I think you can borrow some clues from it. Um, Interestingly, more, more I, like more like tossing it in as like backing up exactly another yeah, point yeah. you're already making instead of right. the primary thing you're leaning on. So, so for example, with the rear the rear delts, obviously a reverse pec deck um, is going to target the rear delts well. Um, I probably would have mentioned in my shoulder video that you know there's a study from Schoenfeld and colleagues that if you externally rotate on the reverse pec deck, so point your thumbs up, you get 
you know, more average EMG activation in the rear delts that way than doing it with the palms down, which I found surprising because I would have thought that, you know, the rear delts biomechanically would be more in, lo- in the line with the application of tension with a more neutral or more internally rotated position, but that's not what they found. Maybe that's because the rear delts do contribute to external rotation slightly, so they're, they're more activated that way. But it leads you to think, okay, maybe I should experiment with different hand positions on the, on the reverse pec deck and see which hand position uh, feels the best for me. Now, if it wasn't for that EMG study, we would never think to do that based on biomechanics alone, right? So that's where I think EMG can enter the equation. And that's really about as far as it goes for me. I did another video critiquing EMG based on that Vygotsky paper. I think it was from 2017, um, where they, and he tweeted about this a couple of days ago too. They pretty much threw out EMG as a viable method, right? He, uh, do, do you know, are you aware of that paper? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you probably talked about it. Um, so, it, he, he pretty much said, like, it's not even measuring activation it's it's measuring amplitude so like from a communication perspective it's a bit of a misnomer to say muscle activation you should be saying muscle emg amplitude and then there are all these instances where muscle activation disassociates from muscle protein synthesis and then there are these instances where muscle protein synthesis disassociates from longitudinal muscle hypertrophy so is this even a reasonable tool to be using in research. I think that was the basic gist of the paper. Um, and now just, I think a couple of weeks ago, I saw uh, him tweet out like, now everyone who's doing EMG research <laughs> is citing our paper as a limitation. But he's like, that wasn't our intention with the paper. Our intention with the paper was to question your entire methodology and say, is there even any place for this in physiotherapy uh, conditions? And I've, I've talked about that paper somewhat critically on my channel. I spoke about it with uh, Jorn Trommelin, who's an actual muscle protein synthesis researcher. He said he kind of disagrees with it because he thinks that muscle protein synthesis, well, let me just follow the whole chain. Muscle activation is predictive of of MPS, and MPS is predictive of hypertrophy, despite there being some counter evidence that suggests the contrary. Um, And so I've entertained all of these ideas on my channel multiple times. But then people who pick out individual videos and say, oh, he cited this EMG study for the rear delts. Who's to say that's to do anything for hypertrophy? Well, I don't know. Not me. It's just that you know, given these time constraints, I can't list every possible caveat every time I mention a study. So hopefully that clarifies that a little bit. No, I I agree with you there. And and I think one of the things people miss when people talk about research, whether it's on YouTube or if they write about it on social media, etc., just wherever someone's talking about it, is unless you've actually taken the time to dig into what is out there, I think a lot of people don't realize just kind of how limited the body of research is. So, mm-hmm. you know, it would be great if, say, you know, you're talking about what the best exercise is for biceps growth. And there's a study directly comparing, like, oh, are preacher curls or incline curls better? But, like, no one, no one's fucking <laughs> doing that research. Because, <laughs> one, training studies are, are very time and labor intensive. And, two, who the fuck's going to fund that? You know, yeah. like the the NIH wants to treat osteoporosis and sarcopenia. They don't care if you can put <laughs> another quarter inch on your arms. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, if you're if you're trying to make evidence based recommendations, you have to 
you have to grapple with the fact that in a lot of areas, the evidence is quite limited, not because the scientific method wouldn't be capable of investigating certain questions, but it's just those aren't the types of questions being investigated. So, you know, you, you don't necessarily have the best quality evidence you would want all the time. And so, you know, to, to some degree, you kind of have to make sense of what you have as best you can. Um, and yeah, that's that's my slight rant on the topic. But yeah. I, I agree very strongly with, with everything you just said. Cool. Uh, I mean, just to even make it more clear, I mean, we could throw out all of the EMG evidence I've ever cited and just say, it's all just noise. You shouldn't look into it at all, which I don't think is the case. Like I think in some cases where the biomechanics aren't perfectly clear and you're looking at different tweaks, I think that those differences, even in regional activation or whatever, can point towards uh, practically relevant training modifications. But let's just say we were to throw it all out. I really don't think it would budge my overall training philosophy at all, really. Whereas, you know, my critics who come from this angle seem to think that if you swipe out the EMG, everything else is just going to come tumbling down. That could not be further from the truth. But I can't say that every time I'm, you know, and I, sometimes I do. There was even a while that I started saying EMG amplitude. And I was like, this just sounds, people, like, can we just assume that, like, for the most part, a higher amplitude is indicative of higher activation. And just from a communic communication perspective, let's just make that approximation. I actually spoke with Brett about this same issue because this is something that obviously keeps coming up. But when I just hear this like lowest common denominator criticism against me, I'm like, I've said this so many times, you just haven't been paying attention, you know? Well, I mean, and that, that's one of the tricky things is like Greg and I both, there are instances where we have to do like, you know, science communication as like a journal article, like a scientific publication. And there is this tendency, even in non-academic set settings, that you want to get your wording perfect. Mm -hmm. And then you look back and you're like, Jesus, that, that's insane. Like, I need to just talk the way a person would talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm getting so caught in in the the little details. I mean, it, it, it what you're explaining totally makes sense given the context, you know? Yeah. Um, well, Jeff, we've been talking to you for a long time. We sincerely appreciate your time, but we don't want to keep you all day. Um, it's been awesome talking to you. Uh, we really appreciate that you would join us today. Um, but before we leave, uh, for people who want to check out your work or for people who want to interact with you online, where can people find you? Uh, YouTube is where I spend most of my time. So if you just YouTube Jeff Nippard, you'll find me there. Um, also decently active on Instagram. I have a podcast as well, but not nearly as active as you guys are. So YouTube is the best place to find me these days. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.